Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Lowblassingame, and I am your host. Today, we will be talking to Bella Baskin, who is the 29-year-old founder and CEO of Blessed Bag. While working at WBTV as a photo consultant, she drove by the same homeless people every day. And although she desperately wanted to help them, she feared if she gave them cash, it would just be used for drugs or alcohol. As someone with a history of addiction, she's now 10 years sober, Bella did not want to contribute to this vicious cycle she personally knew to be so toxic. So she wished there was a better, convenient, alternative way. And when she started talking to her friends about it, they all said they often felt the same way. After going to Los Angeles' Skid Row, talking to people who were experiencing homelessness and asking them what would be useful alternatives to cash, she decided to create bags for men, women, and dogs filled with essential items, including snacks, water, personal hygiene products, and more, that could easily be kept in her car to pass out to those in need. She decided to call her charity Blessed Bag and created a website where people could purchase bags that they could keep in their car to give out to those in need. She also made an Instagram account to educate others about the problems affecting the homeless community and to let her followers know what they could do to help. Bella knew her network could be influential and wanted to use it to create a 21st century approach to charity that would be accessible to every age and income. Furthermore, she wanted to utilize social media to highlight the human connection that is made when personally and directly helping someone in need in hopes that after experiencing how good it feels to help others, people would be inspired to share their experience with others and continue to give back. We had a wonderful time having Bella in the office. So grateful that she came down here to the studio from Los Angeles. And Bella also shared her amazing story of sobriety and how she came into recovery and the things that she has overcome, um, including struggling with an eating disorder. So with that, I would like to welcome you to episode 14. Say it with me now. Let's do this. Bella, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So you are the CEO of blessitbag.org. <laughs> and can you tell us a little bit about how you got into this and what Blessed Bag does? Yeah. So Blessed Bag, I, I'm the CEO and founder of Blessed Bag. Um, I started working on it January of 2018. I launched in December. And what it is, is it's meant, it's hygiene kits for men, women, and dogs who are experiencing homelessness. And it's meant to be an alternative to giving money um, out your car window, for example. So basically, you buy, you know, you buy them online, they ship to your door, and you are responsible for giving them out yourself. So you get the direct one-on-one interaction, and you get to see exactly where your money's going and exactly the effect it has. Do you find that people want that one-on-one interaction? Yes, definitely. I think that especially our generation of millennials mm-hmm. are turned off a little bit by charities because we don't have a lot of disposable income and uh, we don't know where our money's going. Yeah. And that's scary. So I yeah. think the direct I- interaction takes away that like 
question of where's the money going. Totally. Yeah. No, I've definitely thought that too and had to like research where which charity is the best because I, you know, like, okay, where is this money going? Is it better that I just walk down and give it myself? (laughs) Yeah. What made you come up with this idea? Like what was the catalyst for you to move in this direction? Have you always been into nonprofit work? No, I, my, I did grow up going to charity events with my mother. She was like involved in the NRDC and um, the Rape Foundation. And uh, she would help put on the Visionary Ball, which helps raise money for UCLA Neurosurgery Center. So I grew up kind of going to these charity events, but I come from a very artistic background. I went to CalArts for fine art and costume design. I went to makeup school. I um, worked at SNL and Warner Brothers as a photographer. So my background is very much creative visual arts. And I came up with the idea because I was driving to Burbank every day to work at Warner Brothers as a photo consultant um, for TV marketing. And I would always see homeless people on the side of the street. And I would always think to myself, you know, I should keep something in my car. I would see that a lot of them were struggling with addiction, which is something I'm excited to talk about today because I've recovered from that. And um, I didn't want to give money because I didn't want to support something that could possibly kill them. So I always wanted to keep something in my car. And then, you know, life is busy. And I just like wished I could buy something on Amazon or something and get that kind of um, instant gratification uh, because you know, it it was a nice thought, but I never really followed through on it. And so I finally just thought like that, you know, this is a great idea. And like, there's a really big need for this. And I think that this is a void that needs to be filled. And and why don't I do it? And how, what made you think, oh, I want to leave the arts to move in this direction? Like, what was the like, have you given up on or moved, given up is the wrong word, moved away from actually doing other artistic things? Yeah. I mean, I have just because Blessed Bag is, um, has been so, such a time consuming, yeah. you know, venture. But I think that it's something I'm passionate about. Mm-hmm. But I think that I was kind of stuck in these like co- big corporations and I just didn't really see how I was going to move forward with that and grow in those major corporations. And, you know, I I was in the last year I've been doing like freelance styling and photography kind of just for my friends, but I didn't see how... I was going to have a career, you know, in that. And I felt like this was such a great opportunity and a really good idea. And I just wanted to pursue it. Yeah, it's awesome. And I feel like you can probably use a lot of those artistic skills with Mm -hmm. this. Yeah, with this venture. So we talked, I know that you're 10 years sober. And almost. Congratulations. It's awesome. How has that played into this? And, you know, kind of what's your background there? So definitely major influence because such a big part of being a sober person is being of service. And like I said, I could definitely tell that a lot of the people that I wanted to help were struggling with addiction. And I think that 
that's a really big dilemma for people, even people who aren't sober. They yeah. know if they give a homeless person money, most likely it's not going to go to basic necessities that are going to help them. It's yep. going to go to drugs or alcohol or cigarettes, yeah. and it's actually going to do more harm than good. And so I think that dilemma is was something that I wanted to ha- help give yeah. a solution to. Yeah. Um, and I think that being a sober person had a major effect on that, you know? But, I mean, I guess I – should I just get into my story? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. Like what – so you're sober 10 years. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us what – you know, why you decided to get sober? Like what did that look – what did not being sober Bella look like? So from like day one – I'm adopted at birth. Um, So I – I always felt different. I always felt out of place, like my whole childhood. My parents got divorced when I was three. I moved like eight times before I was 10 years old. And my mom and my stepdad, when I was growing up in Connecticut, were working out of state. And so I had a lot of instability as a child, a lot of different babysitters. I think the longest one I had was like four years. But other than that, it was like always a new babysitter, a new housekeeper. And there wasn't a lot of stability. There wasn't, uh, there was a lot of alone time as a kid. And so I developed a lot of bizarre like tendencies, like Uh, I had a sign on my door that said, if you move anything in my room, please put it back where you found it. I had like kind of like OCD tendencies, um, a lot of collections of things. Like I collected stuffed animals. So in that collecting OCD way, it was kind of like an addictive personality, obsessive. Mm -hmm. And so... How old were you when you found out you were adopted? I found out I was adopted when I was five years old and... What that looked like for me is um, my friend had found out that I was adopted and she asked me, are you adopted? And, you know, in my brain, I'm like, I don't know. Like, I don't know what that means. I'm five. Um, I'm five years old. Like, what does that mean? And she said something along the lines of, and I don't know if I remember this incorrectly or not, but she said something along the lines of like, your mom didn't love you and gave you away. And what I read that as is um, I'm unlovable. I'm not good enough. I was unwanted. And so I went home and my mom always told me the story of how I was born and how she went and picked me up from the hospital. But I never knew that that was not normal. Right. Um, And so she said, I said, Mom, am I adopted? And she said, yes. And I said, she didn't know I had this really awful judgment um, from my friend and this messed up definition of what that meant. And so, you know, and she always said, she always made sure to say like, you know, we wanted you, we love you so much. You know, she always overcompensated for the fact, you know, (laughs) like she never made me feel unwanted. She always made me feel like she really wanted me and I was chosen, you know, and I was special. So definitely not her fault. Um, but you know, and not to say like she's a bad mom because she was working or anything. Yeah. And it's not like she chose babysitters who traumatized me on purpose, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, so like today, my mom and I have a really good relationship, but it was definitely, there was definitely a strain on it for a very long time. And, 
you know, I had these babysitters and one of them was so hungover, she burnt her hand on a toaster. Another one, you know, was walking around naked with her tampon string hanging out. And I found out what a period was from her. Right. Another one chopped all my hair off. Another one left me in the car while they went and like saw their boyfriend in a parking lot for like multiple hours. Yeah. And so... Yeah, I just had a really bizarre, I think, childhood. And yeah. so from an early age, I, I, you know, I got really, I would, um, my, my mom was like, you can only have one piece of Halloween candy. So I would stash my Halloween candy and then my brother would come over and I'd be like, psst, like I have candy. You know? yeah. And I like treated like candy, like it was drugs. Like I just had, I just think I was always yeah, um, born that I was born in an addict, alcoholic. Do um, you know anything about your birth mom? I know that she was very young. Um, I know that she was 17 when she got pregnant. I think she was 18 when she gave birth to me. And I don't know if she was one of us. I don't know. But there are things that, you know, I heard like that she did coke and when I was when she was pregnant, but maybe that was before she knew she was pregnant. Right. I don't know. Right. Um, so I'm not sure, but I know she was really young, and I know that her parents didn't want her to like be a mom yet. So yeah. they kind of influenced her to put me up for adoption. Right. But that's it. So. So one thing that happens, and in, in, um, I've actually had this experience going to treatment with a lot of different people, different types of people from different walks of life. And one thing that happens, and I want to address this directly on mm-hmm. here, is that people think that if you grow up with money that you don't have the right to say that you've had a bad child. Like you don't. Oh, and, yeah. and I remember, you know, shades of that, right? Mm-hmm. Which is like, I didn't, I never wanted for anything um, like physically. Like I didn't, I didn't go without in terms of like the necessities, mm-hmm. right? Like, or more than the necessities, mm-hmm. but things happen behind those big gates. And, mm-hmm. and I, I actually went to treatment with a guy who was a prince in a foreign country. Mm-hmm. And he, I, was he an only child? He he spent a lot of time alone, and that was mm. one of the things he talked about. And I'll never forget him talking about how he lived in a castle, <laughs> and he was talking about how the castle wall, like it was a prison. He was like, yeah, like we had, I had all mm. these people, you know, all of the things. But, you know, he talked about like I was in a prison, like the walls were really big, and I was stuck in there, a little kid by myself, mm. and I had a big fish tank. And and that really helped me visualize what that, what like, I mean, my experience was different than that, right? Mm. That's the next level yeah. of like how can that be? And I kind of want you to talk about talk speak to that because I think when people mm. hear like housekeeper nanny, mm. they they have judgments on that, and yeah. that probably didn't feel you know the way no. that it sounds. Right. It's actually something that I've been talking about a lot um, with okay. my therapist and also addressing online. Um, I had someone, you know, like complete strangers, you know, comment on. You know, it looks like, you know, you, you come from money and, you know, how did you get so lucky? And and so it's been something that I have been addressing more and more and is a very sensitive subject for me because my whole life has been like, you're so blessed, you're so lucky that 
you have grown up with money, that you were adopted in this family mm-hmm. that has money because mm-hmm. you didn't come from that. Like mm-hmm. if I wasn't adopted, I probably wouldn't have been raised the way I was raised. And I think that when people say that, they they don't validate your feelings. Um, and I think that I, you know, if I really had a choice, I would have much rather had a family that was present than a family with money because to a five-year-old money means nothing quality time does and my parents were out of state a lot my mom was working in New York I was living in Connecticut for four days a week and my stepdad was flying to Vegas every other weekend and my dad lived in New York and we lived in Connecticut so to me, as a five-year-old, it was like, where are my parents? Right. I didn't care that I had hundreds of stuffed animals or whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, I wanted my parents, you yeah. know, and they were MIA. And so I think that also I will say that I was bullied for having money because it was not – I went to a public school and they called me the rich kid and they made me feel different. And that's not to say that I'm not grateful for everything I have, but I was still bullied, you know? Yeah. Um, And that's not a thing that you would normally bully someone over. Yeah. And so for me, it's like I would never comment on someone not coming from money. Right. You know? So it's it's kind of bizarre to me that people resent me for coming from money or they feel entitled to to my money because my parents helped me. That's interesting. Yes. So That's really interesting. What it you, is. People like like to borrow money kind of deal? Well, yeah. Like I have a lot of people who like ask me for money. <laughs> and it's like That's very strange to me. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Um yeah. so <laughs> it's it's definitely it hits a spot in me. Yeah. It's a very sensitive subject. Yeah. But yeah, like that's not like And I actually had a conversation with my friend about it the other day because I posted on, like, my close friends list, you know, wow, I can't believe, like, a complete stranger would comment on my financial situation. They don't even know me. Right. And she was like, this is not an insult. And I was like, yeah, it is. Because would I ever ever contact a complete stranger and be like, hey, it looks like you don't come from money. Right. It's just none of their business. It's completely inappropriate. Right. And so... I just, yeah, like I said, I, I would have much rather had my parents around than working, yeah. you know? Yeah. And it's not my money. It's theirs. Right. And right. I'm not a spoiled brat. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I started a nonprofit. Yeah. Like, that's what I spend my time doing is caring about other people. You know what I yeah. mean? And helping other people. So, like, I'm not a spoiled brat by any means. You, you know? have a big presence on, on social media. Mm-hmm. How do you match the image with the reality like where does that where does that meet how do you get people to like see the vulnerable piece while also seeing Mm. like the glamorous piece yeah I think that I'm a little bit of both you know and I try to I try to use social media as a platform to like influence in a in a positive way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do talk about sobriety and I do talk about eating disorders and I do talk about quitting cigarettes and I bring it back to like a human level and I 
and I obviously talk about Blessed Bag a lot and what I am doing to help the homeless. And I try to influence others to be of service um, because I think that that's so important. And I think it's something that our generation is really lacking, but also really wants. Right. Because we're always on Instagram and we're saying, pray for this, pray for that. Right. And I always am asking myself, like, why aren't we doing anything? There's all these charities that, like, we can, yeah. you know, be of service. I always think to myself, like, when that stuff happens, you know, I want to, whether, like, when it's a mass shooting, let's just go with that, mm-hmm. right? Or school shooting, let's mm-hmm. go with school shooting. Mm-hmm. I always think to myself, like, yes, I want to do something. And I, I actually went to school, I went to UCLA for, and was doing lobbying and, and poli sci. So, like, I have a background in that, mm-hmm. but that's a full time job. Like, that's a full gig that mm-hmm. you go out and you do and you lobby special interests. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I always think to myself, like, I want to be on the front lines. Like, I don't want to hand people money. Like, that's mm-hmm. not how I want to do things. Right. So, I think that, you know, Blasted Bag speaks to that. Mm-hmm. And I hope that we, I would love to be able to find equivalents in that Mm. in other areas. You know, what can we do? Because I do think I can speak for myself. Like I do think to myself, I'm praying for the families when I see stuff like that on Instagram or whatever it is. And I also think to myself, like I have all this stuff to do Mm -hmm. and I don't have time to organize. Like I really don't. I really have other obligations to people in my life. Yeah. And I do care. So I think it's, you know, there is, I think because we see so much more with our demographics, sees so much more with the online component, we do want to do more, but there is, there's little time to help. Yeah. So Blessed Bag is basically great because it's not time consuming. Right. It solves that problem. um, And it's not expensive. Yeah. And, you know, It's made for the people who have busy lives, who don't have time to volunteer because maybe they work multiple nine to fives or they're raising kids or whatever it is. And, you know, or they don't have a lot of disposable income and they can't donate hundreds or thousands of dollars to a charity. Right. And so the big part of Blessed Bag and tying it back to your question about my social media is that I want Blessed Bag to be a thing for social media influencers yeah. who can have a call to action, who can say, yes. hey, everyone, you know, because Blessed Bag sponsors charities. So when you buy bags online, um, $1 per bag goes to a charity of your choice from a list of charities that Blessed Bag sponsors. So you can, you know, for example, we have Coalition to Stop Gun Violence as our charity that deals with gun violence issues. We have ACLU that's dealing with all the abortions rights stuff. We have Happy Hippie Foundation for um, Pride Month. Yeah. We have uh, NRDC for the environment. So like Earth Day. So whatever issues we're passionate about, we sponsor a charity and we take... So we can do both. Yeah. And so really it's a three-way everyone wins because you're helping a homeless person. You feel great when you do that because you're not thinking about yourself. And I'm sorry, but like our generation is very self-absorbed. We're always taking selfies. We're always on Instagram. It's always about us. And like... We're always comparing our lives to people's Instagrams. And so when you're not thinking about yourself for 10 seconds and you're Mm -hmm. handing someone a bag who's less fortunate than you, you're not thinking about you. And so just that relief of like thinking about another person and being of service, and this is what I say a lot, but esteemable blacks create self-esteem. So 
that's what's going to make you feel good, not comparing your life to someone on Instagram. So I think that our generation is really in need of something like this. Yeah. And then also you're helping another charity in the process. So if you're an influencer, you have millions of followers, say it's Pride Month or, you know, there's just a shooting, um, you can say, hey, everyone, please swipe up, buy a blessed bag. And when you do, donate your donation dollars towards the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence in honor of you know, the mass shooting, whatever it is. And, you know, if you do this, maybe I'll like your photo, I'll follow you, whatever right, it is. Right, right. Um, and uh, send me a screenshot. And they can say that they help to raise however many dollars for their favorite charity. And they actually influenced a positive change, not just like what shoes to buy, right? Mm-hmm. So it's an avenue for influencers to use their influence for good. I like that. I like yeah. that a lot. And, um, I like that it gives you the option of like working with other causes that you care about. Do you do stuff like this is going to sound terrible, but like we don't have a lot of homeless people around where where I specifically live in (laughs) in the suburbs. Um, Not that it's, you know, high end, but they're just not here. Yeah. Um, Obviously, that's very different in L.A. and San Francisco where my family lives. Mm -hmm. What do you have options for people who don't have the time to actually even get, like, can I buy blessed mm-hmm. bags for you to give out? Yeah. So, um, the only, the only way we do it so that you don't have to give it out yourself yeah. is if you buy in bulk, we have shelters who have approved, okay. uh, in-kind donations from blessed bag. Right now they're all downtown because yeah, the blessed bag hub is yeah. in LA yeah. and, um, I I can't ship hundreds of bags, yeah. but I can drive them down yeah. um, d- to downtown. Um, so we had our first bulk order of 100 bags, and it was covered by Spectrum News, and we brought them to the Midnight Mission. Oh, cool. And that was a really special experience. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. I bet. What is it like? Tell us a little bit about your uh, your history with addiction and right. what goes on for you when you see you know, the people down at the Midnight Mission Mm. dealing with what you've dealt with. Yeah. I mean, there's always that thought of like, that could have been me, you know, and, and yes, I come from money, but if I had continued to do drugs and get in trouble with the law, like my parents would have definitely cut me off. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I I I know lots of people who came from money who end up on the streets because the family just isn't going to bankroll that anymore. No, that would not fly. My my family is very conservative in a way. And the reason why I got sober is I got an intent to drive drunk and I didn't get arrested, but it was going that direction. I was driving drunk a lot, you know, and I was 19. I was not even legally allowed to drink yet. Um, How old were you when you got sober? 19. 19. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the route. Yeah. It was, that's the direction I was headed in. There's no doubt in my mind. And if I had been arrested even once, I mean, you know, that was what, what even gave them the idea to send me to treatment. Yeah. But if I had kept going, I yeah. 100% would have gotten arrested and been in jail. And that is not acceptable yeah. in my family at all. I remember when um, <laughs> when I, I brought my friend home and my mom was like, oh, what's his last name? This is in high school mm-hmm. or early high school. And she, I was like, I don't know. <laughs> and she's like, what do you mean you don't know your friend's <laughs> last name? I'm like, I don't know his last like, – you, she's like, how do you not know people's last names? I'm like, I don't know. And mm-hmm. then she said, 
I've never even met anyone who's been to jail. And I was like, mom, everyone's been to jail. What are you talking about? And like just realizing like totally different planets and like having them having, when you have family members who come from, well, like Mm -hmm. a background that does not have experience in this, Mm -hmm. they are completely shocked and overwhelmed with like what happens to their precious loved one who they've raised to be, you know, an upstanding member of society and is suddenly like interfacing with the law and not in a good way. Yeah. It's an, it's an interesting, you know, it's definitely, there's a lot of learning for the family to do. Yeah. What did drugs and alcohol do for you? So like I said, I talked about like my childhood a lot. So I always felt different. When I was 10, we moved to to Los Angeles. I was really resentful. My mom decided, and my stepdad, um, decided to kind of play parent all All of a sudden. sudden, Right, yeah. And, um, you know, and, and we left my dad behind in New York. And I was just really angry. And so that was like my first kind of experience with like, I was just fed up, you know? And so I was angry. I shaved off half my eyebrow by accident. I thought I had a unibrow and I was in the shower. (laughs) And so I was this new girl in this new school. They'd all been together since preschool. I had half an eyebrow. (laughs) Um, My last name is Faye. My legal last name is Faye. And they would, they would say they would either spell it fat or gay. And so I was just... I was just, I just felt different my whole, my whole life. You know, I just felt out of place my whole life. And so what drugs and alcohol did for me is um, by the time I was 14, oh, my mom was, I mentioned this before, but she helps to raise money for the neurosurgery center of UCLA because uh, she had brain surgery when I was 14. Oh, wow. And so she told me I'm, I'm going to get brain surgery. And I had a really bad relationship with her. We would fight, scream, you know, just, yeah. She just, I, I was so resentful at her yeah. and um, for not being around when I was a kid. And so when she told me that, my fear of losing her, and, I, and I've recently read some self-help books about um, being adopted, and I realize now that the reason why that is my biggest fear is because I've already lost a mom. Right. So losing my mom is the scariest thing. And I knew if that if something happened to her, I would always, always, always regret not having a relationship with her right. or a good relationship with her. And um, and so she told me she's getting brain surgery and I could not hang. I yeah. was just freaked out. I was so scared. So that that anger and that fear and that feeling different. So I, I ran away. I like I went to Idaho. I couldn't I couldn't hang. I just couldn't show up for her. Um, the way that I would now, you know, yeah. and and so I went to Idaho and I had my first cigarette, my first drink, and my first joint all in the same night because if I'm gonna go in, yeah, I'm gonna go in, yeah, and um and that's just you know my obsessive tendencies that have always been there, and so what it did for me is it took away those awful feelings that I dealt with my whole life, you know, I no longer felt different. I no longer felt scared. I no longer felt angry. I just felt yeah, like a release, you yeah. know, and it was an escape. And I used that. I used that. And I, I was very committed to whatever drug I was doing. 
it was like I was in a relationship right, with it totally. until it hurt me, and then I would move on to the next one. Yeah, and I would just cross addict, and so it started with alcohol, uh, and then I found pot, and I was like, well, pot doesn't give me a hangover. Yeah, and then I found uh, coke, and and I was grounded all of high school, by the way, like. <laughs> They caught me with pot. They caught right. me drinking. So you were good at hiding it. Like, I don't know. Yeah. I just, and, you know, I was so obsessive. I had, like, this little box with, like, all the paraphernalia yeah, yeah, yeah. in it. Yeah, and I would, me too. I was just very, like, it was like a collection. Yeah. It was like a little shrine, yeah. you know. And it was, the process was, like, it's yeah. part of the addiction right. for sure. And, and, and honestly, it was a security blanket because at least I knew that was there, mm-hmm. you know. And Double you know. Right. And so, you know, and then I found Coke and I was like, well, Coke doesn't give me the munchies and it doesn't uh, make me lethargic or whatever. I don't know. And then I found, you know, my I'll go into a little bit about Coke is like this is when it started to not even be fun. You know what I mean? Because I'd. I would just do so much that I would get so paranoid and I was convinced like because I got caught so many times I was convinced you know there's a camera in my smoke alarm there's spies in the trees that my yeah. parents have hired they have a secret passageway <laughs> to my closet where they can right. they can they're cuz they at need four a in the morning passageway. at 4 in the morning they're going to come check up on me so right. I better pretend that I'm asleep because right. I should be asleep right because if I'm not and they catch me, they're going to know that I'm doing coke. Right. You know? Totally. So it was just very bizarre behavior. And, you know, my friend would come over and I'd be like, we have to whisper. Like it was like that back to that like five-year-old me that was like, I have candy. Yeah. You know, it was like sneaking around. And it was this really bizarre thing where like a lot of the times it wasn't fun. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And... um I couldn't, I don't know, I couldn't stop, you know, until I found a replacement. And Did you ever try to stop? I think I would I would wake up and I'd be like, God, that was awful. I didn't sleep all night. Like, I'm never going to do that again. And then I'd just, like, do it again. But never, like, because I, I, you and I got sober at the same time, similar, similar backgrounds in terms of that. And with Coke, I did not know. Like, I had the same, mm. like, oh, this is terrible. I don't want to do that mm. again. I didn't actually know I had a problem until my boyfriend challenged me to stop. And I was like, oh, you know what? If you challenge exactly. me, I'll try. I had a, I had my first serious relationship. I was 17 um, and he was 23 and he was like a pot yeah. guy. Yeah. And he didn't like that I yeah. did coke. And so I, it became a secret. And then it became like, you know, he wouldn't hear from me for a few days because I'd be like on a bender and yeah. I knew he didn't like it. And then he kind of was like, I don't really like that. And then we broke up. And so what it was is like, oh, I'll stop to like prove to you. Right. Exactly. Um, but what happened is I found heroin. And so right. um, I stopped. I did stop. Coke, yeah. I though. stopped. Coke. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I started smoking heroin and and it just numbed all the feelings yep. of the breakup. Yep. And and how did you find heroin? I like I was hanging out with this guy and I was like, you know, I don't want to do coke. I want to do something else or something like that. And he was like, oh, well, like I have this thing. It's opium. It's non-addictive. And I was like, why would you say that? <laughs> I was like, why was why? I was like, whatever. Like, yeah. Does like it get you high. Yeah. Like I'm not actually worried about that. Yeah. And I was like. Okay. And I was like, 
so can we do it? <laughs> like, I was just, like, confused yeah. as to, like, why he was making a big deal of it. Right. And then I, like, found his—I really liked it, and I found his dealer, and I started mm-hmm. doing it. And I was, like—you know, I went away for, like, a week, and I was, like—I started to have, like, a little bit of withdrawals. And I I told him, he was, like, no, that's heroin. Like, why would—he's, like, it takes three days to get physically addicted to it. And I was, like— Oh, yeah, it's so funny. You and I, I had was this, naive. Yeah, you, know? you and I had the same experience, mm-hmm. which was for me, same deal. Mm-hmm. Boyfriend, mm-hmm. like mine was the that same boyfriend was like, you have a coke problem, and but he was shooting heroin mm-hmm. and tried to stop. Oh, I have. I'm like, oh, I do have. Like, I couldn't stop mm-hmm. and moved to heroin, but I didn't know. Like, I don't know how I didn't know this. No, but like, I did not understand that. Like, there's get high and, like, you get high on heroin and then there's get sick and get well. Yeah. And, like, no, no one told me. That. I didn't mm-hmm. know what – with the heroin, for me, I did not know what I was signing up for. Me neither. I just had no idea. And I felt really stupid when yeah. I found out because yeah. I was already in. Yeah. So my parents – I tried to quit before I went to college. I went to CalArts and I went to Vegas for a weekend and I was, you know – I was only there for three days, and, like, the fourth day of withdrawal is, like, the worst. Mm-hmm. Uh, the worst. So I um, I was on the plane, and I was, like, I don't know if I want to say this, but I was, like, getting really sick. Yeah. Um, and yeah. what those of us who've done heroin know exactly what yeah, was happening. Yeah. yeah, and I was on a plane, yeah. and it was oh, really yeah. unpleasant. No, I was shaking, and I had sh- I was shivering. Oh. And it was like awful. And so I hearing it. I tried. I was like, I got in bed when I got home. I told my parents I had food poisoning and and I was going through really gnarly withdrawals and I, I just I I thought I was gonna die. Like I was like, I can't I yeah. was like, I can't. It feels so, like you're gonna die. Yeah. So I I got I got more and I went to college and, and what happened is I I, oh, I told my dad because I knew my mom would have pulled me from school and I didn't want to stop. Oh, so I told yeah. my my dad and he um he helped me get off of it. Um he weaned me off of it and got me Suboxone or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Uh or it was methadone I think. Yeah. And um I only did methadone for like a, a few days and then I just kicked from there. Um so it got me through the worst of it and then I just ended up replacing it with alcohol <laughs> and I would get really really drunk um to pass out so I didn't have to deal with the withdrawal symptoms that would keep me up all night. Right. And so at that point that demoralization of having to tell my dad and have him see me like that that was when I was like this is not normal. Right. And it became very clear that I that this was not normal behavior. And that went from, you know, the boyfriend and and a couple friends being turned off by the Coke use to being having this secret. Um, my parents would give me $80 a week for like food and expenses. And that all went to heroin. Yeah. And so it was, it became like, I'm just smoking to stay well. Yeah. I wasn't even yeah. getting high no, for the majority of yeah. My, I didn't have the, I didn't have the means. I didn't have the finances to fund that, and they'd always want receipts. And I'd be like, I spend it in the vending machine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I, you yeah. know, would lie, and yeah. and I did not have receipts for my heroin purchases. Yeah, I didn't either. You know, <laughs> yeah. turns out not <laughs> turns taxable. Out, yeah, turns yeah. out you don't get yeah. receipts. Nope. Um, and so, yeah, so I was just smoking to get well, and then. 
And it was funny, like, you know, because someone said to me um, once that, and I was on heroin at the time, they said, that was the first time I saw you smile. And I was like, that hit, you know, because I was, I had this secret and I couldn't tell anyone. And I was, none of my friends were doing heroin. So this was totally by yourself. It was totally isolating. And it became that same feeling as when I was like a little girl of just, I'm alone. Yeah. Um, And it was really demoralizing and um, telling my dad that and having him see me like that. And so I went from the girl who didn't talk to anyone my first semester to the sloppy drunk girl who got so drunk that she went skinny dipping or, you know, embarrassed herself in Mm -hmm. some sort of way and and was like, hugging everyone <laughs> like wow I went from like not talking to you to like yeah. hugging you yeah. you know and you're like who are you <laughs> like yeah. who is this girl right and um and well, she really opened up <laughs> yeah like what happens um so you know it just I knew that this was not normal and I knew that I knew that something was different and I did find people who drank the way I drank, though, you know, and partied the way I partied. And so it became easier to, like, lose the people who were freaked out, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, So, yeah. Hi, I'm Peter Loeb, CEO and co-founder of Lion Rock Recovery. We're proud to sponsor The Courage to Change, and I hope you find that it's an inspiration. I was inspired to start Lion Rock after my sister lost her own struggle with drugs and alcohol back in 2010. Because we provide care online by live video, Lion Rock clients can get help from the privacy of home. We offer flexible schedules that fit our clients' busy lives. And of course, we're licensed and accredited, and we accept most private health insurance. You can find out more about us at lionrockrecovery.com or call us for a free consultation, no commitment, at 800 258 Six five five zero. Thank you. And where did the eating disorder fit into that? Mm. So I think that at a really young age, like 13, I would say, um, food was my first Mm -hmm. go-to for numbing my feelings. I would eat like a whole family-sized bag of Doritos in one sitting and like I'm not a family, I'm one person. (laughs) So I say that a lot, but it's true. And um and so it became an escape and I gained a lot of weight and my my family, God bless them, they just they don't know they don't get it. You yeah. know what I mean? So they um bribed me to lose weight. They were like, We'll give you like, I don't know, it was like twenty bucks a pound or something. Oh boy. And um nothing better than that for an eating disorder. Yeah, that was not <laughs> oh, the um, Yeah. But it, was, I mean a lot it's I it's I, common. It's common and it's and it's like what do we you know, it's problem solving and trying to be supportive. They were trying yeah to, you know, but I was 13. Let me just be chubby. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, you know, and then my eating stuff was just dependent on what drug I was doing. Totally. So, you know, when I was 17 and I was on Coke, my parents thought I was anorexic, but like, I just wasn't hungry, Yeah, you know? And then yeah. when I was doing heroin, 
anytime I would eat dairy, I would throw up for no reason. I don't know why. I don't know if that's like a common thing with heroin, but like you just throw up a lot with heroin. Yeah. I don't know. And so I would just like throw up sometimes yeah, yeah, and I don't know why. A lot. <laughs> yeah. Just a lot of throwing yeah. Up. And then um, <laughs> when I was drinking, I was like eating like fourth meal, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Like fast food restaurants yeah. after yeah. partying, 2 a.m., yeah. hot, street hot dogs, whatever. So, oh, yeah. Oh. So, <laughs> so like whatever, you know what I mean? Like yeah. and I was drinking um, those like uh, malt liquor juice things are like 2,000 calories. Uh, brutal. Thing. And then eating like garbage on yeah. top of that. So I was overweight when I got sober. And so what happened is um, I cross-addicted and um, I went from drinking and drugs to anorexia and cigarettes. And um, Oh, you went anorexic when you got sober. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And so it became obsessive counting calories. Mm-hmm. Um, it became uh, measuring my broccoli, subtracting calories for how much gum I chewed. How did you go from <laughs> just out of like, yeah. how did you go from the binging to like what changed? Because you didn't take the binging with you into sobriety, Mm-mm. you transferred it to anorexia. Well, yeah, I didn't like the way I looked because I was overweight okay, from right. all the drinking. I was really bloated. So this and, was the solution. Just yeah. Full speed in the other direction. Yeah. 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 And. And I think it was just the fear of being overweight Mm -hmm. that kept me – because I don't have body dysmorphia. I never looked in the mirror when I was 92 pounds and thought, like, I look fat. I was like, whoa, I'm way too skinny. Right. And how tall are you? I'm 5'4". Right. So I'm 130 pounds now. So I was 40 pounds lighter. Oh, my God. And it looked really scary. It sounds really scary. Yeah. And so my parents were like, if you want to leave your sober living house, uh, you have to gain weight. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, fair. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. they're like, you need to be healthy. Yeah. Else we, you, we can't have you transition out. And also not the answer, but right, they right. tried their best. Right. You know what I mean? And um, so I started binging. And I remember um, because I hadn't eaten like that in so long, I felt like my stomach was going to explode and my heart, my heart rate right. was off. And right. it was really scary. Yeah, you were really sick. Uh-huh. And so I started binging and t- and eating all the foods I was restricting off of to get to the minimum healthy weight, which Did was 107 pounds for okay. someone my weight. Okay, and so, so they I, gave, you knew where you I had binged till that point. Mm-hmm. And then I uh, was counting calories to maintain that weight. But it was still that obsessiveness. And what happened is I quit smoking cigarettes. Not because I really wanted to, but my parents asked me to. And I was like, okay, I'll try. And I had 10 months sober. And I went from, you know, for a week, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, um, cigarettes a day. And I went to Six Flags for like some like sober convention thing. And I got really sick. I uh, Your blood sugar lowered. I actually just got nine years off cigarettes on June 6th. Congratulations. Um, thank you. So I... Hardest thing I've ever quit. Yeah, it is. And so I got really sick. I fainted. I blacked out. I was throwing up and I couldn't get off my couch. So the day I was supposed to have one cigarette... I ended up having none. Yeah. And so I was like, well, I guess I'm not going to go. I guess this is it. Like, let's try this, you know. And what happened for me is because I got so sick like that, it really scared me because I thought, like, I was sober. And I never really felt sober until I quit cigarettes because um, I use cigarettes alcoholically. I use them when I was stressed. I use them when I was angry. Mm -hmm. I use them when I was irritated. I use them as a reward. I, You know, I use them. And 
to as a release, you know, and and, you know, I know it's like a sensitive subject with like sober people because they rely on it a lot and they think it's better than but it's something that kills you and it's bad for your health. And that's a that's a fact. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so it's it's been interesting with it is a self-destructive tendency, you know, the resurgence of vaping has been an interesting thing because Mm. I think we were really moving. I think we were moving away Mm. from people smoke. It's certainly in the West Coast where people weren't smoking as much. It just wasn't cool anymore. It Mm -hmm. was, you know, people. And then there I've seen I mean, I had a friend who hadn't smoked in like 15 years who started vaping and then started smoking. So like, you know, we've moved, you know, seeing that. E-cigarettes weren't really a thing when I quit. No, 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 no. They they were like brand new yeah, and they weren't cool or anything. No, they definitely weren't. And I think honestly they make it harder to quit smoking. I I think so too. Because it's like, how do you wean well, yourself you off of that? It. What are you going to have? Like, you're going to be like, oh, I can only have 10 puffs a day. Like, how does that work? Well, you know what I mean? People do it more because they right. think they can do it inside or in, like, there's right. there's a, you know, I'm actually deathly allergic to it, so it's a whole different thing for me, but. It makes they, my throat hurt. Yeah. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Which is a blessing because it's yeah. kept me away from it. But yeah. yeah, so what happened is I started to see better, smell better, taste yeah. better. And I was like, wow, I had no idea what I was doing to myself. And because I got so sick when I quit, it reminded me of heroin withdrawals. Right, so you had and an I adverse. And I really did not like that yeah. because I thought I was, like, on this spiritual path and, like, I was trying to be a self-loving person. And I was like, oh, my God, like, what was I doing to myself? I had no idea. It's just that next layer. Yeah, and it freaked me out. And yeah. so I quit smoking, you know, and I didn't really plan to, but it was that – it was that reaction, like that physical withdrawal, yeah. which I reminded me of heroin. And I, I was like, <laughs> yeah. wait, I thought I was sober. Like this yeah. doesn't feel sober. It doesn't. You got sober at 19, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm in the, I'm in the um, never mm-hmm. had a legal drink club. Yeah. What was, I mean, I, I, I know what that's like for me and, and thinking back on that, what has that been like for you? And, and, you know, sometimes I've run into like, oh, I've spilled more on myself than you've ever, you know, all that (laughs) shit where you're just like, or people who, you know, the one I get is, um, oh man, I'm so jealous that you got sober at 19 and you had all this. I'm like, do you know how badly I had to get up to get sober at 19. <laughs> yeah. Like I had to run that to the ground yeah. to be 19 and be like, okay, I'm, I'll be sober. I won't do anything. Yeah. You know? What has your experience with that been? Right. I think that everyone's for the most part in my life always been really supportive, but I have people who are like, you were, you didn't really have a problem. Right. Like, it was just experimenting as a kid. And, and it's like, no, like I know my truth and yeah. I know that I was really, I was really like psychologically screwed up. Yeah. And I really um relied on drugs and alcohol heavily. Like I was I was doing like a gram of coke a day. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. This was not like this cute kind of right weekend right fun glamorous. This was, no, yeah. this was really um dark and I think when you start to use heroin, I mean, yes, mm-hmm. like coke is one of those things where I think people negotiate. I feel like there's no place for moderate like heroin yeah socially yeah no not that I've seen no (laughs) and um I I think that like I feel lucky that I quit when I did yeah and I just know my truth so it doesn't really bother me 
Like, when people say stuff like that, I'm just, I kind of, like, laugh and roll my eyes, yeah. you know? But people do have Yeah, said but that. that's, like, a jealousy thing because yeah. they're— Oh, it's totally— Yeah, they're totally. older and they've, they've ruined they've, their lives for a lot longer, yeah, you know? for sure. Um, so I feel lucky that I caught it at a young age. So you have had major milestones and really growing up, I feel like your 20s in sobriety is, like, is a crazy thing because you're really going through— periods of life where people tend to binge drink a lot, mm. even in normal right. society. Yeah. And what has the growth pro- – and you're growing mm. up so much. Like I feel like you grow up so much from 20 to 30. Oh, yeah. What has that been like for you? What has sobriety done for you growing up 20 to 30? Well, all my friends are always like very supportive. Like my friends who drink and party, whatever, they're always really supportive. And I think that the problem – I think not the problem, but one of the problems is that people think like, okay, I got sober, so like I can't have fun now. Yeah. And I think when people have that tendency that's or that thinking that um, sobriety is something that limits you, they're less likely to stay sober. I love that. Because it's the freedom. It's the freedom. And like I go to raves still. Mm -hmm. Like I used to rave when I was 16. I'd sneak out of my house and drive to San Bernardino like I was real crazy, which is like when I look at 16-year-olds or 14-year-olds now, I'm like, oh, you have kids. So it's like I know know, it's wild. Yeah. um, I I don't think we were normal 16, like I don't know. I'm like, that's a baby. That's a baby. Like I wasn't baby. look like that. Did, Did you look like that? Did you – when I look at photos of like – her 16 and my 16, yeah. I'm like, okay, yeah, that's a baby, but also, like, she didn't look like – like, I was yeah. dressing it up. I was wild. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was dressing it up. And I think, yeah, that was, like, a rebellion maybe in, yeah. in a way or, like, a way of expressing myself because yeah. I felt different. I don't – it was, like, an outlet. Yeah. But – But you got something out of it that you've been able to carry into sobriety, though. Like, it was – there was yeah, stuff about it that you enjoyed. why I – raved is because I like dressing up. Yeah. Like I said, I went to school for costume design and makeup. Uh, I liked dressing up. I liked taking pictures. Yeah. Um, I like dancing. I like that kind of music. Yeah. And so for me, like, it's so important that I have fun in sobriety. Absolutely. Because if I don't, then what's the point? You yeah. know, and I think that people are like, oh, well, I can't do that anymore because I used to drink at things like that. And it's like, or I used to use at things like that. And like, yes, definitely when you're newly getting sober, you yeah. don't want to be in those right. environments you that are tempting. You have to do the work. You have to get a foundation, solid foundation. You have to get something that you're going to lose. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. And so I didn't party or whatever for my first six months. My first thing I went to was like a Halloween party at my college. I was extremely uncomfortable. <laughs> and then I just realized... Over time, like, no one cares that I'm sober. No one knows that I'm sober. Yeah, yeah. If someone asked me if I want to drink, I just said, no, I'm good. I don't – they don't know that I yeah. haven't had multiple drinks already. Right. Or you don't have to I'm, give them a long – No. <laughs> no one, and you know what? No one's thinking about anyone but themselves. Totally. They're really not. They're not like, oh, what a, what a weirdo, you know? Yeah. And a lot of times – what happens for me is like I'm so free spirited and I'll be, you know, at Coachella and I'll be dancing and I'll be like laughing and people will be like, hey, like what do you where, want? What do you want? Like yeah. where can I get that? And it's like I'm just comfortable <laughs> in myself and I don't need anything. Yeah. You know, I'm not relying on a substance. You can get that with 10 years of deep interpersonal yeah. work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm on sobriety. Yeah. So – yeah, that's what – that's – I just had to snap out of that. I had to snap out of that self-obsession of everyone knows I'm sober. Yeah. And I just had to, like, kind of force it. Yeah. And then it just became easier, and I became 
I was having more fun because I wasn't so concerned on, about getting the drug or where is yeah, that or I have to out. go get loaded or, Ugh. oh, I need to go have a cigarette. It's like those things distract you from being in the moment. Right. And when I'm in the moment, that's when I'm having fun and that's when I'm laughing and I'm letting loose and I'm being myself and I'm comfortable. All that other stuff is just an anxiety-driven crutch, you know? Totally. And so I absolutely think that sobriety makes that better. It doesn't take away from that. Totally. You know, it's, having fun. It, it's funny. I was reading something about this. I was reading something about this as it relates to food. And it was talking about, because since getting sober, mm. food, drug, drug, food was my first drug, right? Mm-hmm. And like similar yeah, things. And, similar yeah, yeah. And then like drugs and alcohol. I was like, why eat? Because that makes you fat. I'm going to do drugs. Mm-hmm. That doesn't, I don't have mm-hmm. to worry about that. And I was reading something about how, because, you know, dealing with that and like it was, this was particularly as it relates to like refined sugar. Mm. And it was, somebody was talking about how in the mindset is I'm going to take this out of my diet and it's that it, you're removing something, mm. but the truth is you're, you're actually adding in freedom. Like you, that, that the, it's the thought process is, oh, I'm removing something. I don't get to have something, Mm. a scarcity, but what you're really getting is freedom. And that's exactly what happened with the alcohol and the drugs, which was, I felt like I was taking, particularly at 19, like I was taking out this ingredient of my life and that I could never touch. And therefore everything was going to be gray. I was going to live in black and white. Hmm. And really what happened was that was the black and white. And I added back, like all the things I got back Mm -hmm. was, were the freedom and the color in my life. Same thing. Like I grew up in sobriety. I grew up in young people's Alcoholics Anonymous, going to rave, sober raves, mm. going to the conventions, doing all the things, making all the mistakes really mm. sober. That was the one thing. It was like I did a lot of stuff sober where I was like, I have no reason to say. I have no excuse. I have no excuse for yeah. my behavior at all whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> it's completely but sober. just being yeah. a kid. And we, right. we grew right. up. In in, but in like this community, this right. community that was like, we love you and mm. we're going to love you until you love yourself. Mm-hmm. And and then a community that also said, you need to do the work on yourself. Right. That didn't let me get away with, right. oh, but I really struggle with this or that or, yeah. you know, oh, I have a problem. Yeah. They were like, yeah, that's great. We all have a problem. So you need right. to do the work. What are you doing? Right. What kind of work have you done on yourself? Like what's what is the... We all have our own kind of, I mean, there's, Mm. there's, if you're in program, then you have program, but like we all have our own recipe for how we stay sober, particularly long-term. What have been the big pieces? Like what, what is your recipe? Well, I think what's happened for me and especially like in the last year, and I think this is part like what we were talking about. It's just part of growing up, but Mm -hmm. also that alcoholism, that ism can be directed at anything. So whether it's, you know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. bad relationships or sex or shopping or food or cigarettes, there's always, it's always that searching for something outside of yourself to fix you that, you know, has been the part that's hard to break because it's really the root of all of it is Mm -hmm. that searching. And, and what I've found, and especially, In the last year, I started meditating regularly, which is something that I always kind of left out of my, you know, step work. So obviously, I did what we do in the program. I got 
a sponsor. I work the steps. I started working with other alcoholics. I sponsor people. I have six sponsees currently. You know, sometimes they fall off or yeah. stop calling yeah. or whatever. Um, I but had one. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I'm of service. Right. Um, I go to meetings. And there's definitely been parts of my sobriety, like when I lived in New York for three years, where I was really dry and I was not working a program and I didn't have a sponsor and I didn't go to meetings. I really don't recommend that. I'm a very high-maintenance person. I need my daily routine. I need that security of I know what I'm doing today. I have my routine. It's that same, you know, thing that in some ways has been one of my defects, but it's also something that has now become one of my assets is that I'm a routine person. I'm an addictive personality. I'm obsessive. And so every day I go to meetings. I, you know, not every day, I'd say like four days a week, I exercise, I um, do meditation. Exercise every day? I exercise like four days a week. On average, it changes. Yeah. Three Five, whatever. But I'm not obsessive with my workouts. Like what happened for me with food, which was different from drugs or alcohol, you can, you know, you can smoke or not smoke, you can drink or not drink, you can drug or not drug, but you can't eat or not eat. And so with food, that was really difficult for me because I had to learn how to moderate. And so for me, like you were saying, like that taking away, mm-hmm. that does not work for me. Yeah. If I take away or if I restrict, I'm 10 times more likely to go the other way and overeat right. or binge. Right. And so recently, and this this is what I wanted to say too, is like something I heard recently was like everything I've ever gained is due to everything I've ever lost. So if you don't lose something, you're not likely to gain anything. You know, if you don't lose the bad ex-boyfriend, you have no room to meet the new, you know, love of your life or whatever it is. And so I actually have it tattooed on my foot, but it says rejection is God's protection. And so I just always am trusting that, you know, things are taken out of my life to give room for a more positive path. And I'm kind of just pushed in whatever direction I'm meant to go in. And I have to like live in that faith. And so, yeah, restricting didn't work for me and, and taking away stuff doesn't work for me. So what I had to do is, you know, not restrict myself. I just had to learn how to moderate and have, you know, I'm not, I can have a donut whenever I want. But do I want a donut? Is it nourishing my right. body? Is, it is an this alignment? a self-loving act? Right. Okay, if I'm at a birthday party and there's cake, I'm going to have a slice of cake. Because if I don't, then all I'm going to think about is how much I want cake. And I'm going to go buy a cake the next day right. Right. at Ralph's and I'm going to eat the whole cake. Right. So like, if I'm at the movies, I have popcorn. You know what I mean? If I I live my life, but like, am I going to the movies every day? Is there a birthday party every day? No. So it's like, just wait till I have kids. <laughs> <laughs> then there is a birthday party every day. Yeah. <laughs> so I just kind of like, I kind of let myself live. Yeah. But um, do you have like a coach or a person? You know, you you've right. learned these behaviors. Right. Where, did you learn them in treatment um, or therapy or how? Where did you get this? Were you, or they well, were just. When I first got abstinent from eating disorders, I went to OA, Mm -hmm. and that helped for a while. And then I said, like I said, I had a dry spell. OA is Overeaters Anonymous. Overeaters Anonymous. And then I had a dry spell when I was living in New York. I was working 68 hours a week. What does dry Bella look like? Just really irritable, really angry, 
really just impatient. And so food was the last thing I got under control. And so it was the first thing to go. And um, loss is a really big trigger for me. Yeah. Uh, abandonment, you know, because I'm adopted. And so I had one friend in New York when I moved there and he uh, got hit by a car riding his bicycle oh my gosh. and he died. And so when that happened, most people... While you were living there? Yeah. yeah. And I met all my friends in New York at his funeral, actually. So it became kind of like a beautiful right. experience. Um, but their way of dealing with it was to drink and party. And my way of dealing with it is I just started eating. And I could not stop. And so I relapsed on my eating disorder. I started binging for a long time. And I gained so much weight. And I could not stop binging that I eventually started purging. And I tried to avoid that purging yeah. part of it as long as I could. But I just... Yeah, if you, can't, if you can't stop binging. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, you know, tried to control the weight gain by purging and it didn't help. That's no. not, uh, that's not how you lose weight for anyone listening. Yeah. 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 That does not work. Yeah, and no. I know from experience. Yeah. Um, so I, um, it was the first thing to go. And so I, um, started going, I started trying to go away again and I could not connect. I couldn't it just wasn't working. Yeah. And um, so I started going to a behavioral therapist mm -hmm. and being accountable to him is what helped me get abstinent that time. And I think it was an important experience for me because I'd never experienced a relapse situation before. Mm -hmm. I got sober when I got sober. I right. quit smoking when I quit smoking. I so got humbling. abstinent in no way. It was humbling. And yeah. so I had never had really a lot of compassion for relapse mm -hmm. situations. And so it gave me that. And so... I had my first experience with like a major relapse in anything, you know, addiction related. And then I had an experience where uh, something other than program can help, you mm -hmm. know. So a behavioral therapist, being accountable to him. I started dating someone. I was like, what? I live in a studio apartment. What am I going to like go in the bathroom? And like this right. doesn't fit into my right. lifestyle right. anymore. And so... I got abstinent and I just said, you know, if I'm a little bit overweight, but I'm just stable, I don't care. So I was like, you know, a little bit bigger than I wanted to be, but I was just the same weight for like over a year, which right. had never happened before because I was right. either like, I'm skinny forever. And I got rid of all my like oh, yeah. quote unquote fat clothes. I don't yeah. like to use that word. Yeah. And then you know, I'd be overweight and I'd get rid of all my skinny clothes and then I'd be skinny again. And it was like this yeah. like back and forth, you know, struggle of, so basically I went through like every eating disorder and sobriety. Um, now I have like three years, maybe four abstinent, but my relationship is so much different with food because it had to be. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't know my exact sobriety or my um, right. abstinent date because I just, you know, I'd get one day and then I'd get two days and I'd get one day and it was like, it just, Yep. I don't know. Like, I don't know the exact day. I believe it's like the end of August sometime four years ago. So maybe I'm coming up on four years. Maybe it's when you got the behavioral therapist. Yeah. Like I, you made a, made a, yeah. I just, it was interesting. I have, because I, I go to OA mm -hmm. and this is something that's been up and down. Mm -hmm. And with kids and pregnancy, the self-care thing mm -hmm. is, is like super gnarly. Mm -hmm. And my sponsor was telling me that she was saying, what did I do? Oh, I, I said something to the, I just made a different decision. Like I didn't, it had nothing to do with like food per se. I was like, oh, oh, I know what I did. Somebody sent me the potato diet. I don't know if you've ever heard this, but you eat only potatoes. Mm -hmm. And I was, I didn't open, like I was like, that's nice. You lose a pound a day, blah, 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 yeah. like been down that road. Mm -hmm. And I literally didn't open it. I just told her, I was like, I didn't open it. I just know that like 
That's not. That's no. just, it's just not going to work. Like, yeah, it may work for but it's temporary. Just, it, that's yeah. just not the solution right. anymore. And she was like, "Oh, that's a recovery decision." Right. And so I've had to look at my relationship with that as like making recovery decisions. And it kind of right. sounds like your move to say, "Okay, this isn't working. I need to make a recovery decision." Right. Like that was your first, yeah. or next yeah. recovery decision. Yeah. But I love that that you 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 sought help in whatever form. Right. I just had to kind of act as if, like I was like, okay, people who don't have problems with food aren't thinking about what they're going to eat today. You know what I mean? I mean, no, I don't know what you <laughs> yeah. mean, but like I believe, yeah, yeah. yeah. yes, I've heard so that. It's like, I've I heard that people do that. Yeah, so it's like, I just, I don't know. I had this relief from it and yeah. now I don't have to think about food the way I used to. I right. just don't, it's not even, it's like right. a complete, it's a different world, you That's know, awesome. because it was either like, I'm on this diet and I can't have this or I can have this. And like, you know, let me plan what I'm eating every day and let me figure out what calories are in it. Or it was just like stuffing my face with all the stuff I said I couldn't have. Or, you know, it was just this instability. And now it's just, you know, I tend to kind of like eat the same things, but I I don't it's not something that it's just a complete different relationship with food than I ever had before and it's like this relief. And I think it's really I mean there's nothing gnarlier than having an eating disorder in sobriety it's and I worst. truly believe that um because yeah. it's you have no relief. Mm -hmm. You have no you have no relief. It's just okay, I can't have that. Oh, I had that. Oh, how dare I? What did I do? Why did I eat that? How many calories in that? Oh, what am I going to do to fix it? I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to do this. I, I'm going to take these pills. I'm going to whatever. It was right. like that just so gnarly, that inner voice that you could not shut up with a drink, you know? Yeah. And so I don't think I would have stayed sober if I yeah. hadn't gotten my yeah. eating disorder under control because yeah. it was so gnarly. It was just the voice never stopped. Yep. It was just that self beating myself up all yep. day about how, why did I eat that? Or you can't have that. Or like, you're too fat to, and I don't use that. Like, I, I don't even use that word anymore. Yeah. Like I can't even, it's like hard for me to say it. Yeah. And I don't, I don't talk to myself like that anymore. Yeah. And that's what I had to start with is yeah. that inner voice, you know, of the way I talk to myself and like, just accepting myself and loving myself. And anytime I think a negative thing, I replace it with a positive thing. And it became, it just, it became all about the mindset of it, you yeah. know? And, you know, I don't work out to lose weight. Working out isn't what makes you lose weight. It's yeah. not, um, yeah. unfortunately. And I work out for like my mental, yeah, you know, absolutely getting rid of stress. It's part uh, of us. It's part of the self-care. Yeah. So, what I do on a daily basis is how I stay sober. Right. And I think the biggest piece that I've learned in the last year is the meditation. And because I've learned how to meditate and I learn how to sit with myself and be okay in myself and just be with me, I realized through my meditation practice that like everything I ever searched for outside of myself, like happiness or love acceptance, all those things that I search for in the bottle or the cigarettes or the food, I've had all along. Yeah. And it became like more of like a power thing, a powerful thing that I have all the things that I ever wanted. And when you, you know, 
what's the saying that I'm looking for? Everything you seek, you already possess. Mm -hmm. And so I just, I learned how to just be with me and just like love myself. And I think that that, you know, over the years, my friend Emily always says like, I've peeled away the layers of the onion Mm -hmm. and I've gotten to the core. And so between my meditation practice and I had to, I think, you know, it was, it was the drugs and the alcohol and then it was the cigarettes and then it was the eating disorders. And then it was, you know, my relationships with men, you know, I definitely over shopped at one point, you know, or, you know, what you can use anything. Yeah. Anything. Um, It'll creep up anywhere. Yeah. And so the most recent part a couple years ago was my last breakup and I had to figure out why I was choosing men that would abandon me the way I was abandoned when I was adopted. Like they would live with me multiple times. They were living with me and then all of a sudden one day they'd be gone. They would move out without telling me. It happened oh twice. Like you'd come home and they were gone? Yeah. And so oh I had I'm to- not adopted and I would freak the Fuck yeah. Out. And and I've learned like <laughs> freak out. I've learned like with compassion that we were so codependent and unhealthy that they felt they had to leave that way because right. I wouldn't have let them if they had asked, right, right, you know, right, right, or right, talked about it. But at the same time, I had some really really bad choices in relationships. People that I knew I didn't want a future or see a future with. People that I knew didn't have, you know, their shit together, excuse my language. But Yeah, I just, I would choose these men and I had to look at that because it's like, I'm 29. I want to find the guy that, you know, I'm going to be with and, and what am I doing wasting my time with people that I know can't give me what I want or what I deserve. And so two years ago, I had came out of a really unhealthy codependent relationship. He left, you know, the way he moved out without telling me. Then he moved across the country without telling me. We were really codependent, really unhealthy, arguing all the time. And like, why? Why I'm choosing to be in toxic relationships. And so the meditation thing is of recent, as of the last like two years, that was huge for me. And then the last like six months or so, like maybe a little bit less than that, actually, um, I started going to an EMDR therapist, oh, awesome. um, which is like trauma therapy. Oh, yeah. Love EMDR. And, and before that, I went to a sex therapist. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, have been like trying for the most part to be abstinent and just be single yeah. and not sign up for things that I know aren't healthy. And yeah, I've had like month tidbits here and there where I'm like, you know, and then it ends because I'm like, no, this is not what I want, you know, but it's that old behavior popping up and, you know, choosing guys that I know, whatever. And so luckily they were short term. (laughs) There was a few of them in the last couple of years. And I think that um, the EMDR has really helped because it's I'll give one example. So that memory that I have of the girl telling me that I was adopted, it helps bring up trauma memories and recategorize them. So I categorize that memory as I'm not good enough. I'm unlovable. I'm different from my fellows, whatever it is. And what I learned to do is recategorize that as that girl wasn't a nice girl. Yeah. And I was able to think what happened is when we were doing the trauma, you follow yeah. with your mm-hmm. the fingers with your eyes. 
Or the tapping, yeah. And what happened was is I, I remembered other memories of that particular girl where she was not nice to me. And I was like, oh, that wasn't me. You know what I mean? That wasn't there's something wrong with me. That was there's something wrong with her. Right. She's a bully. <laughs> right. And I was able to figure right. that out. And she just happened to have that information. Yeah. And I was able to recategorize yeah. that memory as grouping it with the other times that she was not nice to me. And that was like really groundbreaking. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so it's helped a lot, I think. But other than that, I just do what sober people do. And I think taking it back to Bless It Bag, I w- I've, you know, what helps me is being of service and not thinking about myself. And so I want everyone, including people who aren't sober, to have the opportunity to have an outlet to be of service yeah. because we're all so self-absorbed and we're always comparing ourselves to people's lives on Instagram, which isn't real. And, you know, what really makes you feel good about yourself is being of service. So I wanted to give people in AA and outside of AA a way to be of service that felt realistic for them, Yeah, you know, because... Yeah. The men's and women's bags are $15. The yeah. dog's bags are $7. It's very affordable. I love that you included dogs because that's a, you yeah. always see, you know, homeless mm-hmm. people with yeah. with their dogs too. And, yeah. and, and you know that they're companions. Yeah. And the concern with that is like, okay, if they can't take care of themselves, how are they taking care For of a dog? For sure. For sure. Um, and so that's a big, um, yeah. you know. No, I love it. It's true. It's true. And, you know taking away an animal for someone who has nothing right. is also really yeah. devastating. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, I love middle ground. Yeah. That's my, I, I'm, I'm all about, I'm extreme about middle ground. <laughs> well, I love what you're doing and I'm so grateful that you are here and I know that we want to work with you and do stuff with Blessed Bag. Where can people go to follow you, find you, be a part of your journey, contact you, et cetera? So you can go to blessedbag.org. All the information's on our website. You can order the bags from our website. Um, you can go on Instagram at blessedbag. We're so it's very B L E S S I T B A G. Yes. So our social media presence is really important to us because I I think that that's something that a lot of charities are lacking in. Mm-hmm. You know, we want social media to be chain to influencing a positive chain yeah. change. And so we have that. And then if you have any questions, you can email me at blessedbag at gmail.com. So you're the granddaughter of Baskin Robbins. Mm-hmm. So is there going to be anything with Baskin? <laughs> are you going to be giving out ice cream or are they going to come in to help? So my... Yes, it was my grandpa and my great uncle. They're both they both passed away now. They started Baskin Robbins. They sold it long time ago. I believe Dunkin' Donuts owns it now. Oh, really? Yeah. So I don't know. That's well, actually eat. a good idea. You gotta call them. And That's s- a good idea. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's not yeah. It's, you should I don't get free ice cream. <laughs> You know, my Nana is the connection. It was her husband and her brother. So her maiden name is Robbins. Her married name was Baskin. She named Rocky Road Ice Cream. Love that. She is the coolest. Um, My number one human. I'm her biggest fan. But, yeah, we are not tied anymore. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Well, hopefully they'll – 
hopefully they'll come in that and would help be out. Really it would be really cool. Yeah. yeah. But it's funny. I'll tell a story because it's Idaho related. I was like eight or something and my friend was like, let's go try to get free ice cream. And yeah. I was like, oh, like I was like nervous about it. And I knew I was yeah. like. We're not tied. Like, they're not going to care. And the person behind the counter is not. Right. The person behind, who's the person behind the counter? <laughs> yeah, they're even. not going to care. So we walk in. We're in Sun Valley, Idaho. And we go to the Baskin Robbins. It was, like, in between Haley and Ketchum, I mm-hmm. think. I don't think it's there anymore. And we go there. And I'm like, hey, so, like, my grandpa's, like, Baskin <laughs> and Baskin Robbins. Like, can we get, like, some free ice cream? And they were like, yeah, we get that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and, you're like, and I was like, really? Wait, <laughs> you get that? All- <laughs> yeah, wait, what? That's pretty like, amazing. You get that all the time? Yeah. Like, that's really like, weird. I'm, that's actually more interesting than <laughs> yeah. the free ice cream part. But it was like, you know, as a kid, I yeah. was so, like, Embar- uh, yeah. embarrassed. Yeah. And I was like, I'm never going to ask yeah. for that again. Yeah, yeah. totally, totally. Yeah. Well, we, um, I love what you're doing. And it's Thank amazing. You. And your story is really amazing. And I think your recovery shows that and that you've done the work. So I love that. And uh, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast, would like to thank our sponsor, Lion Rock Recovery, for their support. Lion Rock Recovery provides online substance abuse counseling where you can get help from the privacy of your own home. For more information, visit www.lionrockrecovery.com backslash podcast. Subscribe and join our podcast community to hear amazing stories of courage and transformation. We are so grateful to our listeners and hope that you will engage with us. Please email us comments, questions, anything you want to share with us, how this podcast has affected you. Our email address is podcast at lionrockrecovery.com. We want to hear from you.